Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. I hope you enjoyed your New Year's break. I thoroughly enjoyed mine. I did a lot of reflection and understanding of where I want to take the show and what I want to do with it. And I'm really excited about the next year and what it has to offer. I'm starting this year off right with a episode by Crazy Polymath Kunal at Crazy Polymath on Twitter. Uh, this is our second discussion so far, and this one far outdoes it does our first one. And so I'm really excited to present it to you, and I'd love to know what your thoughts are. Uh, if you do have any thoughts, please send me a DM at Stuart Alsop III on Twitter. Uh, and if you really like this episode, please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, any of the podcast platforms and subscribe and leave a review if you really like it as well. Hope you enjoy this episode. Let me know your thoughts on Twitter at Stuart Allsop III. See you guys soon. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Today, my guest is Kunal. Uh, he goes by at Crazy Polymath on Twitter. Uh, and we've done one interview before and it was highly received, very interesting interview. A lot of people liked it. It was one of my top rated interviews. Um, and so Kunal is back on the show. Uh, welcome. Hey, hello, Stuart. Thanks for getting me on the show again. So crazy polymath, you are writing a book now, you said? Uh, yeah, I, I'm always, uh, doing some random stuff and this time it just happened to be a book. Mm. So yeah, I'm writing a book on desires. Desires. Okay. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Um, the biggest thing, the biggest trap that I ended up when I was thinking about desires and like, I heard all this Buddhist talk about desires and that, you know, desires, the root of all suffering and everything like that was that I was somehow going to get rid of desire. Um, and that didn't work out very well. Uh, what, what is your take on desire? Yeah, I was going on this exact same path. <laughs> so this is uh, uh, the place. This is the exact experience that I also felt. And uh, this is what led me to write about desires. Earlier, uh, around uh, two months ago, I was deep into philosophy and spirituality stuff. So I was reading these things. And I particularly remember the book, uh, Spirituality, The Damnest Thing by Jed McKenna. And uh, I started to feel like my desires are, are like suppressing, getting suppressed. And uh, I was getting a feeling that uh, this philosophy stuff is killing my desires. So I was thinking that, is this a good thing or bad thing? And uh, eventually I came to this conclusion that just by becoming a monk and giving up all your desires cannot be the ultimate experience. As a human being, I think the ultimate human experience would be uh, having a monk-like mentality to see the truth and having a king-like mentality for prosperity and having a warrior-like mentality for fighting, for uh, chasing something. And uh, when we combine these three archetypes, then I think we get an ultimate human experience. So mm -hmm. the direction I was going in when I read uh, the spirituality, the damnest thing, and I was experiencing these things with my desires. Mm -hmm. But uh, eventually, I, I, I took a break from this. And uh, after the break, when I again saw my notes, I, and I generally write books like this, I collect the notes first, and then I see what's the theme coming up. So after the break, I saw that the theme is actually desires. desires. So first, I was thinking that 
the theme was ultimate human experience. But on the second look, I found that, no, I was actually writing about desires. Oh, interesting. And so we got these three archetypes. Yeah, that was uh, my earlier idea. Uh, okay. And yeah, so I shared about it on Twitter. Hmm. Uh, but uh, now I see those thing, those uh, notes again, and I see the theme is actually desires. It's not about ultimate human experience. Mm. And how did that? How did you find that? What is the what is the connection between archetypes, if any, uh, between archetypes and desires? Between archetype, when I was writing the notes, and I mean before the break, when I was into archetype, and uh, I saw that, uh, yeah, like if you could see the truth. This, that doesn't mean that you have to kill your desires. Yeah. And as soon as you say you talk about uh, desires, you also talk about pleasures. So this is also a, a rec- recurring theme on in some of the spirituality books and parts that you also start giving giving up all your pleasure. So I think there could be a combination, a healthy combination of all these three things. And it just happened to be that yeah, all, when you combine these three things, you get three these three archetypes related to each of these three things. That is the truth, the pleasure, and the fight. Mm. And so that's really interesting, particularly because when we give up pleasure, when we try to give up pleasure, and we try, and then we we essentially go off into the forest or whatever and we try to become the image of the monk or we, the image of the thing, but that's just another form of pleasure. Um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so. So now I don't think that uh, pleasure is an issue. I think the chase of pleasure is an issue. Mm-hmm. I, I totally don't uh, uh, promote the concept of abstaining from pleasures. Mm-hmm. In fact, what I think is the optimal way is to enjoy the pleasure when they come, but do not chase the pleasure. Mm. And you might have interest in, insight into what I'm about to say, but um, and you might not because I know that India has changed a lot. But I do in my readings about cannabis, um, I understand that sadhus uh, in India use cannabis uh, for spiritual goals. Uh, and I've also read somewhere, and it kind of hit me, and it, it seems similar to what I was doing with it, which is that cannabis actually increases the sensuality of experience and it's not necessarily in order to um change it's not necessary in order to do anything but it's about that sort of pleasure thing so that you're just hit with a ton of sensual pleasure until you've had enough of it basically and then it leads you past pleasure um oh yeah yeah this is new to me yeah um and i'd I'd be curious in the area, you don't have to mention the specific area where you are, but like in the general area, are there a lot of sadhus? Because when I went to India, I remember in the train station, there'd be a lot of um, sadhus who would, who would be hanging out in the train station all over India. Is it common in your area? Dude, <laughs> I live in a dry state. Like even <laughs> alcohol is not allowed here. <laughs> uh, interesting. <laughs> uh, interesting. Um, and, 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 yeah, India is so big. Yeah, so we've, huge. Yeah, we've we've got desire and what about pain? Are you going to write about pain? Pain. Uh, let me remember. I definitely had some notes on pain and pleasure. Like this is common to almost every organism that we have 
an attraction to pleasure and and aversion to pain so yeah basically desires sometimes desire arise from pain uh, like this is a common buddhist concept that desire leads to misery but on my exploration i find that misery leads to desire and uh, uh while while writing this book of course uh, i sat with this question of what is desires so i sat that i sat with that question for around one and a half hour because i didn't want some wordy meaning of the word desire but i wanted to find the essence of the word desire and i came up with this definition that desires is basically a non acceptance of the current state of the universe so when you are not accepting the current state of the universe then of course you are in pain you a kind of pain uh, and misery rides through your life and from there you uh, from that place a uh, desire pops up so i think yeah i don't know why uh, uh, buddhism treats it opposite i i find it that pain leads to desire i really like what you just said about when you're fighting with the universe um and it happens a lot and it goes into again like when you're fighting with the universe you don't really notice that you're fighting with the universe and that's the only thing you can do to basically shortcut the 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 pain of fighting with the universe cuz reality is the way it is and we can fight as much as we want we can become delusional but ultimately it's like we are going to to lose that battle against reality why do you think it is why do you think it is that human beings cuz i don't think i don't think a dog or a whale or a spider can fight against reality i think they just they're just in it um or and their perceptions are so limited that they can't really develop this mental model of what would how could reality could be different why do you think it is that human beings um this is a difficult question but why do you think it is that human beings have this capacity to fight reality and not accept reality as it is yeah i i think you have already answered your question like uh, animals do not have that level of perception mm. our mind is more kind of developed and i cannot say for good or for bad <laughs> but it is more developed and we kind of are able to see and um, visualize these abstract notions which animals specifically mm. are not able of doing and there's also a concept of uh, neuroplasticity uh, that applies in here and like the size of our brain compared to the uh relative muscles we have uh, is also big and the neuroplasticity is also very high so all these thing combined could be leading to that uh interesting this is something i recently made a video on um is the something i read in the book range by david epstein uh he talks about how our levels of iq and i'm not saying anything about the value of iq as a measurement but the levels of iq remain stable generation over after generation but there's a oh. test there's a test about um our each generation's ability to or each individual's ability to handle abstract concepts and trade in abstract concepts and think about abstract concepts and, and that marker of intelligence is actually getting better with each generation um so the the kids that are growing up now are going to be better at at dealing with abstract concepts and thinking about abstract concepts and trading them uh, than we are um and uh this is something really interesting because that seems to it 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 goes into everything and it, particularly with the internet i've thought a lot about this because 
um, I, I do this thing called spaced repetition memorization where I have a, a flashcards that are brought to me at a, by an algorithm every day in the morning I wake up and I do it and, it, and it's, I'm learning vocabulary for biology. Um, I'm also learning vocabulary for uh, different languages that I speak uh, so that I can expand my, my abstract concepts in those languages as well. And um, what it's doing is it's, it's growing my field of things that I can conceptualize and that I can talk about. And, and like when I think about a cytotoxic killer cell, which was something that came up yesterday, I actually have a visualization of that now because I've seen that word over and over and over again. But the first time I read it, I was like, I have no idea what that is. That, that is ridiculous. Um, and then, so this allows me to do this. And it's funny because it's, and now I used to think I'm doing something really important. I'm going to, I'm going to like, you know, really get all the knowledge and everything like that. Now I think it's just kind of like something I do for, for fun, just because it's interesting and it, it gives me interesting things to talk about on the podcast. But, um, and that's, that gets into the nature of all this little useless things that we, not useless, but kind of weird things that us humans, human beings do throughout the day that we ascribe importance to, but there is no importance that's like somehow within the thing itself. Or would you agree? Or would you disagree? Yeah, exactly. And that's a very good point. That doing something just for doing that and for the sake of doing it. And so instead of uh, some outcome, that's a very uh, good way to de- to chase some desire because eventually everything is meaningless. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's it. At an individual life, it'll be meaningless because my my awareness, my perception will die and then and then there is no meaning after that. I mean, unless unless I, I ascribe meaning to if I have children and then they have children and they have children, then I, you know, can, but he, and, and then there's this sense of like, we're having this interaction right now. Maybe you say something that makes a change in my life. And then I go and change my behavior towards somebody else. Uh, and then it, it has a positive ripple all throughout um, eternity. Would yeah, you think exactly. that meaning? Totally. I do believe in that. Uh, that, that pairs very well with uh, uh, the karma that, uh, a lot in Hindu text, you will read that uh, karma karma never dies. So, th- you your actions, your even your thoughts have this ripple effect. That uh, uh, if you see the universe as a complex system, then uh, in it's a property of complex system that a single entity, a change in a single entity, propagates through the entire complex system, depending on how connected the complex system is. And of course, the universe is a very connected mm. complex system. So. Every action and thought we do and think about do have a ripple effect and it goes on till inter- eternity, as you said, and uh, it has an effect until the eternity. And, uh, but it, on the contrary, I like to think about concepts in two parallels and al- almost opposite directions. So in the opposite direction, I also think that there's no meaning of thinking about legacy and stuff because eventually everything we think uh, everything we perceive and everything we call this universe will fade away. Yeah. So I, I believe in both, uh, both these directions. Yeah. It goes into a paradox. So when you, um, when you mentioned rippling out into the universe, I had this image of that we're on earth and that outside of earth, there's empty space. Um, yeah. Uh, empty space from our perspective, from our senses. Exactly. But, yeah. Yeah. And then, but then, and then I got the thought about like, well, that's true that there is empty space from our perspective, but then also there is this nature that everything in the universe is already connected 
quantumly, and I'm, you know, I'm not a quantum physicist, so I can't make that claim accurately, but it, but, it, yeah. it could be connected to quantumly, or it could be just one thing, like the sense of separateness we guess we get is from our limit from the limits of our senses and the limits of our language. As soon as you say that an apple is lying on a desk, you imagine one apple, you'd imagine a desk both as a separate entities. Mm. But it is a construct of the language. And uh, mm, I, I have been thinking about it, this thing, uh, and I have a good example. For example, mosquitoes see us. Like, for example, I, I'm sitting here, how does the mosquito find me? Mm. So there are two ways. Mosquitoes uh, sense our carbon dioxide levels as well as our heat signatures. So suppose there you place two people very close to each other. Their heat signatures will meld into each other and the mosquito will see one entity. Mm. But from our sense, from our eyes, we can see that there are two entities. So our senses are not that dependable and probably, I cannot say of course with certainty, but probably everything is one thing. Like there's, there's no separateness. This separateness is an illusion created by our senses. That was really cool. I really enjoyed listening to that. It also makes me think about another book called The Other Minds, uh, and I don't remember the author right now, but Other Minds, and that went into the development of the nervous system and how the de- nervous system developed, how our senses actually developed, and the immediate thing that it developed is because we started to go into a hierarchy of predators and prey. Um, and so the things that sensed better started to survive, and that those are the things that ultimately survived. And that's how we developed our nervous system and a mosquito developed its nervous system in order to see heat signatures. We developed our eyes in order to see things. And that this gets to the point of the human being, because what you mentioned about the apple on the table, we have such good sight, but actually not as good sight as an eagle, but we have very good sight for what we, for our purpose. And we can see an apple that's separate from the table. Um, which a mosquito doesn't even see. A mosquito wouldn't even see the apple or the table. Mm. Um, and yes, it's very it's very difficult once you kind of go into this to start <laughs> believing in any sort of objective truth. Um, I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, we, we start to lose uh, the solid uh, ground that we imagine we have. Mm-hmm. And why, and so I think about this a lot and I have an answer or I have a a potential answer to this question. Why is it that humans have this need to be certain about things? To be certain about things. Mm. And I can give more context. Uh, So, so the way that I see that is that we, we, we are, we want safety. There's chaos and there's order, and that part of these human, part of the human experience is to create order out of chaos and create a walled garden and a city where we can live. Um, uh, but then we we seek the certainty, and and it seems that mo- a lot of people seek the certainty within concepts and beliefs and ideals and these types of things, um, and they're willing to fight to the death essentially to to uh, to uh, prove product that, their beliefs. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Why do you think it is? Yeah. Or what are uh, your thoughts? I thought you just answered <laughs> why <laughs> it is. <laughs> because we want order in the chaos to survive. Yeah. yeah. And this gets into something I've been starting to notice, and I'm curious whether you're noticing it in India or even on the internet, um, is that we're, that, seem, that process seems to be speeding up and for most people is that 
that we're now getting really, really kind of tribal about our beliefs and our uh, things that we hold to be true and that there seems to be a lot of conflict that's arising because of that. Would you say that that's accurate? Mm, I think it has always been like this. I don't sense a change in level of this thing. You don't notice a, ch- a relative change in, in the way people are starting to... Um, no, I think it was always like, like this. And maybe maybe it is... It's just more visible now more because of internet and connectivity. Say, yeah, it's more, it's more... It's easier to find that and to find examples of it because you can go on Twitter and, you know, see Donald Trump uh, uh, saying his things and then the, the, you know, the left saying, saying the opposite things. And, um, and so it's just kind of there, but maybe in a sense that making it more visible also makes it more real. But then I've also thought about the opposite, maybe the act of exercising or displaying our beliefs on this abstract thing called the internet actually makes this process less dangerous because we're having an abstract place to discuss this, which is not able to go into the violence of in-person thing. But I'm not sure on that. I'm not sure that that is accurate. Mm, Yeah, both are interesting take. Yeah. So do you have any insight into the rise of, are you watching the rise of startups within India at all? No, I'm totally disconnected with it. (laughs) You're on the, you're on this type of how human belief and human behavior and human desire affect, you're a philosopher, you would say then. I don't know. You can say me a seeker would be a, Better word. <laughs> Seeker. Okay, interesting. I'm just seeking truth. Uh. And truth divorced from sort of relativity. Yeah. And in fact, I also want to see the relativity. Mm. Not divorced from it, but also observe it. Mm. Do you find it difficult growing up or living in a society which doesn't really value seeking? And maybe it does in India. I think uh, the internet, I don't know about the society, but the internet definitely values it because all my Mm -hmm. tweets are mostly the realizations that I come across throughout the day. Mm -hmm. I share it on Twitter. I have built on an audience now i'm writing a book so i can even earn money by this thing so this was never possible before like earlier writers were this hungry people poor hungry people but uh, now that's not the case so i'm actually happy with the current mm-hmm. state and that that that's a very good interesting point thank you for bringing it up which is that yeah a couple hundred years ago if you were talking about the things you were talking about you maybe you might find a small little group in your town and and you might you know go off walking and, and find other people who think about it, but it's probably not a huge percentage of the people, particularly last hundred years. Like I think a couple thousand years, it might've actually been like maybe a fair amount of people were actually doing this and thinking about this and talking about this. Um, 
but uh, probably among the elite as well. Um, but now we have this thing with the internet and maybe, you know, 99% of the people in your hometown don't care. But when you open it up to the rest of the world, there's like 7 billion people out there. And how many are on the internet? Probably about 3 billion, 2 billion. Um, that might be smaller or it might be more. Um, and then of those two or 3 billion, you know, how many millions of people are interested in this stuff? And it's probably a lot. Um, it, it does open uh, new gates. So I'm happy with my society until it blocks Twitter. <laughs> right. <laughs> which may, which may, you know, which it, it, it is not necessarily out of uh, inconceivable. Governments are yeah, totally. Right? Yeah. totally. Governments are starting to close borders around the internet. The most visible example of this is China, but other, other countries are starting to do it as well. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, to me, it, it, it is getting more difficult to believe in a free and open internet. Um, not, and not only from, from the Chinese side, from the American side as well, you have companies like Facebook and Google that have essentially created walled gardens um, out of a, a free and open internet. They've now created a closed, closed system within an open system. Um, do you want to talk about that? Yeah. Open systems versus closed systems? Do you have any I think that? completely free uh, system cannot be developed. Hmm. And if it is developed, it would be um, tried to jugulize. Like if you are going for free speech, then hate speech is a part of free speech. Hmm. You cannot block. If you create some a social media website, suppose um, based on the blockchain technology like Bitcoin, and uh, it gets widespread and it is not able to, like no one can control it and it goes wide like Bitcoin has done. Then the problem arises that how will you stop the hate speeches on that platform? And according to the the founders of the American government, the the American Constitution, they would say, "Well, you don't want to. You you that that part of it, allowing for that part, is is actually an important part of of society." Um, exactly, and this is, a lot of people are not willing to accept this thing. Yeah. Well, and, and because it's, hate speech and like when when people start talking about uh, say child pornography, or speak people start start talking about. Uh, killing other people so if you see a completely free speech platform then um, i do not get an idea of how to you know control these things mm. Mm. because i often think about it like uh, what if uh, uh, my next project could be a, a completely decentralized social media platform like more of a protocol based instead of more of platform based because as soon as you, I create a platform, suppose I create a platform and allow everyone to say everything on it. As soon as someone speaks something bad on that thing, which is illegal according to some country's rights, that country is going to grab my callers that, hey, this, this thing is not allowed. You, should, you have to ban these people. Mm -hmm. So you cannot create a free speech platform. You have to create a free speech protocol. Mm -hmm in which the developer himself is independent and the structure is decentralized. I would say that that already existed uh, and is continuing. Yeah, uh, those exist, but 
as i said it has to be some widespread thing right? well um uh, so it it has existed and it's called the uh, it was called the silk road um and it was a it was yeah, a, yeah, a, yeah. A, a dark dark web marketplace where anybody could could buy and sell whatever they wanted um and uh, that existed until the us government uh started to uh not want that anymore and and started to develop their their uh programming resources to uh, taking it down and finding all the people responsible. And that's how Ross Albrecht got put in jail. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then another one <laughs> immediately rose a couple of years later, they got that one. And then it's just been like whack-a-mole. And I'm sure they, they did a huge, they did a huge bust of about six months ago, seven months ago, where they took out a bunch and they did this honeypot uh, way of doing it where they, they uh, took over the servers. Uh, they found all the people took over the servers silently uh, and then got all the people making purchases and actually found them out and went after them as well. Um, and, uh, uh, but, and then they took them, took them down eventually, but I'm sure there's others now that have been built off of technology, which is always interesting. Cause that's the internet. Like that was the internet itself in the beginning. Like most people used it for pornography, um, and video sharing and all these different stuff. And then, and then, and now it's that it's that's happening with technology and with, with kind of these, uh, dark web technologies as well as that, it's really interesting this openness versus closed system because as the governments governments you know they used to in the 1700 1800s the government had limited power um and then within the united states and with the rest of the world governments started to grab a lot more power and create these large huge administrations that that sole goal is to grab power and to continuously grab more and more and more power and the executive branch of the united states government is now very large um, and like bureaucratically large so that they, you have these like giant companies within, within the, the government that are responsible for these various things. And now I find it so interesting that we have these technologies, as you mentioned, these protocols that are now opening that are ma- making the internet more free again. But then as you mentioned, like there, then there's, then there's these issues of child pornography and these other things, which like society, like, like those are morally and ethically wrong and should be stopped. Um, but then who is it, but then you can't control it within a free, free, free system as well. Yeah. So we've got desires. Is there anything else that the book is going to include? What else about is that desire haven't we covered? Desires. Um, there's a lot of thing uh, going on in that book, and since it's not finalized yet, so I I still don't have uh, finer details to share. Mm. But I can uh, share, for example, one mistake that I, a terrible mistake that I recently made because it it links with desires very well. So as I said, while I was writing this book on desires, uh, I took a break in between. So I took that break because I caught another desire and that Mm. desire was on in another field and that desire was to create a course. Um, So where did that desire come from? Uh, At that time I was, I read uh, an, an article by someone who, Clearly, I mean, step by step, mentioned how he launched his course. Uh, 
So from and at that time, my a friend of mine was also working was was also planning to launch a course in a very similar niche. So I instantly shared that link with that friend uh, in the hope to motivate him. And I don't know what happened to me. I thought that well, uh, why not I uh, build and launch a course, and that would motivate him even more. And I right away uh, jumped into that course, into chasing that desire. Mm. Now, this was of course a mistake mm. because from past two years, it has almost never been uh, the case that I started chasing a desire without asking questions. <laughs> this really, I from almost past two years, I have this mental framework from which every desire that pop up in my mind goes through, and uh, after that. Uh, after processing that desire, I start to chase that desire. But this time, this one desire skipped my radar, and I directly ch- start chasing it. Started uh-huh. chasing it, and within a month, within a month, uh, I noticed it that the content I was creating for this course was more of a forceful content. Like it, the content was not coming from the heart, and I instantly realized, damn it, this time uh, this desire caught me. So these are kind of mistakes that people make with desires. They do not analyze their, their desires. They do not think about the outcomes. And uh, they do not have a proper framework to process their desires before starting to chase them. And that, I think, that leads, leads to misery. So, in fact, uh, and of course, uh, at that time, I dropped that desire. And uh, I'm not working on that course anymore. I have to apologize to the 400 uh, people who are waiting for updates on that course mm. but i'm okay with uh, accepting my mistake uh, but i'm not okay being dishonest with myself so i want my work to be coming coming from heart not coming from force well and that's the interesting thing that you mentioned that i want to bring up which was that you said analyze but then you also said from the heart and yeah and from the heart is, this is a very very difficult concept mm-hmm. to get into from the heart i mean uh, uh, you can think it as an opposite of force like creativity comes from flow it does not come from force mm. i deeply believe in this and when i'm writing content something writing something about it and i feel like i'm forcing myself to create that content so that is not something that's coming from heart mm. so let's I'd, I'd love to take that and make it personal for me um so i've recently come into a change in my life where I'm, I'm, I've, it's certainly a desire, uh, but it's also seems to be coming from the heart, uh, uh, which is to move from San Francisco to, uh, to, uh, Latin America and start to, uh, do a lot more interviews in Spanish and, uh, also to, uh, and I've already been doing this where I've started to interview people all over the world, but I want to start doing it on the ground as well. Are there questions that you can ask me to make? First, I would like to clarify that uh, analyzing was desire for desire, but the heartfelt thing thing was for the action that you take for mm-hmm. that desire. Like when I'm actually writing the content yeah. of that course, I felt that this was forceful content. I'm, I'm forcing myself to create content. Yeah. And so, so it, yeah, in my situation, that would mean essentially like that I'm trying to force it and that's the interesting thing. Like, you know, I've been looking for people to take over my apartment and I've been looking to uh, sell my motorcycle. All, all of it is, is flow like, except for yesterday. That was really intense because I had like five Craigslist people 
all cancel on me or, and then like all converged at one time. Uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> which is really interesting. It's really, it's funny cause I've been, I've been essentially doing this podcast for a while. You know, we've been scheduling and I've, I, as I mentioned before we started recording, I'm doing two or three interviews a day. And so it's like scheduling has become a lot larger in my life. Uh, and, and now I'm adding another element, which is scheduling people on Craigslist who are not as, um, professional as, as <laughs> you are or other people. Um, but yeah, all the behavior, all the, the, the actions that I'm taking are just arising and the, these, these things are just kind of coming into place in a way that like, I only thought of this a week ago and then all of a sudden it's like, uh, like, oh, every, fantastic. Like, That's yeah. a good sight. <laughs> yeah. Right. And like today I could make the decision like easily. I've already got apartment. People want to take the apartment. I've got people who want to buy the motorcycle. Um, so it's, it's, it's all there and it's like, and also then I, I reached out to people in Colombia um, and all of a sudden I got all of the people that I want to interview already on, online. It's like San Francisco itself is lo lo like none of the, most of the interviews that I've been doing, even within San Francisco, I've done like in-person interviews, but the vast majority of them are, are remote now. Uh, so it's like, why not go, go somewhere else to do this? Yeah. You are on a good path. Cool. I'm very excited to see uh, the results in the near future. You are, by the way, not focusing on Twitter, right? I'm not, you said? I'm focusing on Twitter. No, I'm, I'm, uh, Twitter's a main, it's a, it's a, it's a way that I, that I kind of, uh, find podcast guests and kind of give my thoughts out and stuff like that. I'm, I'm on Twitter. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I felt it. Mm -hmm. Um, what, what is wisdom to you? What does wisdom mean? Wisdom, I can compress wisdom in three words, meticulous ob objective observation. Mm. So I, I do not think that um, reading or age or even experience or listening to podcasts like this is going to make you wiser if you do not have meticulous objective observations. Like, okay, what, what do I mean by that? Uh, by observation, of course, uh, I mean that uh, when you read something from, uh, suppose you read a life lesson from a book and you applied it to your life. People think, think, think that this is a complete cycle, but this is not. The cycle completes when you observe the results of your application. So if you do not do this last step of observation, then you are just a follower, you're not wiser. Interesting. And also the objective part is really interesting because as we talked about, we have our senses. Yeah, seeing without filters of the mind. Yep. And where does that awareness come from? Because it doesn't seem to be an awareness of the mind. What is it? No, as objectively as possible from the perspective of mind. Yeah. But it seems like mind is the filter through which awareness comes. And then awareness is the backdrop to, and because you can be aware of everything that's happening in your mind. I can be aware of everything that's happening in my mind. Um, I mean, not everything, but I can be aware of the processes that are all conscious and everything like that. And then when I ask myself, what is the thing of being aware of that? Um, nothing, another thought might come up, but I can be aware of that as well. And so there's mm -hmm. this, this, this awareness in the back that, or all around or nowhere, you know, that is, that is the backdrop to all of this stuff. And when you say yeah, objective, yeah. that's, that's the thing that I think of. Mm -hmm. This is actually in my to-do list of researchers. Uh, I, I want to research in a self 
aware systems like that researching that direction would uh, point me to how the mind is aware of itself or is there some other entity which is aware of the mind interesting so it is in my to-do list i haven't uh, digged deep enough into this and this gets into because i believe that human beings are the only self-aware system uh it the mind, the could be like i cannot we cannot say that with absolute certainty um, but then the, the large worry for a lot of people here in Silicon Valley and probably around in some other places in the world is that we're actually building technology that might have the potential for being self-aware as well. <laughs> yeah. Self-aware system. So you do, do your research and after that, let's do another podcast on that. Cause that sounds really interesting. Oh yeah, absolutely. It could be my, uh, topic theme for some other book. <laughs> <laughs> So what is the importance of work in life then? Work in life, oh, I, I think it's very important, but I do not see work as an independent uh, entity. I see it uh, with a bigger lens that uh, if you see all the waking hours you spend, you'll realize that all of it is spent in one of these three things, either on people, or on work or on self you are either with uh, you are either spending time with people around you or you are spending time with your work or you are spending time alone with yourself mm-hmm. so i see it in this bigger way and i see that work is a very important part of it like you should find balance between all these three things how much time you spend on work how much time you spend with people and how much time you spend with yourself some some people for example very introverted people like me uh, I spend a good amount of time uh, with my work and with myself, but I do not spend enough spend uh, enough amount of time with other people. So any kind of imbalance in uh, amid these three things causes uh, suboptimal results. And uh, from this perspective, I think that one should like treat work as equally important as their relationships and as time spending with themselves. I think Steve Jobs has a very good quote on it. Like you need to find what you love and that's true both for your work and your relationships. Mm. I totally agree with it. And in your town, um, you know, you've got this work thing covered and uh, I imagine you've, you've spent time with your family. Uh, what about that friendship or the people, people that you love? Uh, where, where do you find them? Did you go to high school in the same place you are now? I am at the same place. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, and you but still most have... of my friends are not here. They uh, are in separate metro cities. I am in a very small town. And, and in India, is it common for people now, young people, to go to another place within India in order to find more opportunity? Yeah, totally. Yeah. It is getting more and more common now. Because huh. that, was, that was something that happened with my, my parents' generation in the U.S. was that you... Uh, usually go to college and then usually the college is, is far away from where you grew up. And then afterwards you find another city, which is also far away from both of those places. Um, and it seems to be uh, a common thing to economic development. Um, and it, it, I remember seeing it in Latin America the last time I was there. Uh, and apparently it, it looks like it's happening in India as well. Um, and I remember that being in India as well as that a lot of people would go to like IIT or whatever, and then, and then go. So it, it's not really considered, most people don't go back home basically to live. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. 
So what are you seeking right now in this moment, like in this conversation? Oh, I'm just enjoying it. <laughs> I'm not seeking anything. <laughs> I'm just enjoying conversation with you. Uh -huh. funny because I um, have been traditionally pretty introverted, particularly over the last four years. And then this podcast and doing these interviews started to become more important. And it's really funny because I almost, I almost, I went off on a two year kind of meditation, like off into the forest kind of thing and uh, spent all my time deep, going deeper states of concentration meditation. Um, and I was very introverted and I was spending time in these, these, these communities and some of the communities, there were these people who would make vows of silence. Um, and, and I was like, why would they make a vow of silence? And I was like, ah, that sounds pretty, pretty interesting. I might, I might want to do that. It was really funny because I thought the rest of my life would be like that. Um, and then I got, I got pulled back into to society and stuff like that. And I started doing these interviews and now I spend so much of my time talking to random strangers <laughs> <laughs> um, on, on the internet. Uh, uh, and it's, it's a really interesting thing. Cause it's like, it's that going back to that same thing we started with, which was that I had this desire to be, um, fit the image of a yogi or fit the image of a, of a person who meditates a lot. Uh, and that, that was most definitely brought about by force, um, uh, and seeking this image. And, uh, and then now it's like the total opposite of that, uh, and, and it's really interesting. Oh, fantastic. Mm -hmm. My life is also like almost in silent mode <laughs> because as I said, uh, I, um, uh, most of my friends don't live here. So around 25 out of 30 days, uh, I talk around four to five sentences <laughs> to my mom and dad. <laughs> <laughs> and I can feel that. I can feel that in your your concentration because that's that's an interesting thing that happens when we when we go alone is that once we actually start doing when we, when we start talking that the the weight of each word uh and the weight of 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 what we are expressing becomes much more valuable um and much more uh pointed and i can tell from our conversation that you're you're very pointed at the moment um uh, oh thanks i yeah. thought i was just <laughs> because i really think that my uh speaking skills uh, suffer a lot because of this they uh, suffer most of the time I don't speak anything. So my speaking skills definitely uh, suffer a lot. And that does happen for sure. Um, but you do have a clarity to you right now. And you, but you don't have any like formal meditation practices. You don't do any like pranayama or, or shamatha, like watching the breath or anything like that. I don't do as in like trying to meditate or something, but uh, I do sit down straight and don't think or don't do anything mm -hmm. after my lunch and dinner for mm -hmm. 20, 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is not uh, coming from uh, like meditation perspective. This is coming from more of a trial and error. So earlier I used to try like uh, after having a meal, I would try um, like just sitting down. I thought that no, the, the, digestive, the digestive process is not that optimal. Then I tried uh, walking after taking meals. 
So it is common here in India. They say that walking after a meal helps digest the food. So I tried that and I thought that it could be better. And after walking, I tried Vajrasan. Vajrasan, you are a yoga teacher as you already know that it is it is advised advised to do Vajrasan after meal. It aids digestion. And when I did Vajrasan, I noticed that there was a significant improvement. And uh, while doing Vajrasan, I saw that why, why is there a significant improvement? And I saw that my stomach and uh, like uh, my stomach, liver and intestine, this entire thing gets more volume when I sit in Vajrasan. Because when I sit in Vajrasan, I notice that my back automatically straightens up. Mm. So that was that I found that interesting. But in Vajrasan, I can sit more at max. 15 minutes. Hmm. So after those 15 minutes, I started to sit in Padmasan. And uh, no, no, sorry, uh, in Sukhasan. But I cannot do Padmasan. Hmm. Sukhasan is uh, the feet below the thighs. I hmm. cannot do feet above the thighs, which is typical lotus pose, position. So then I, uh, so 10 minutes I do Vajrasan and uh, then 20 minutes I do Sukhasan. And uh, while doing these asanas, I just sit and relax, I observe my thoughts, see see what's going on in my head. Mm. And I, after observing it for a while, it automatically settles down. Like There's no meditation practice like that. Mm-hmm. But it just naturally, I came to this thing. This, this goes back to the original point that, and a question that I had. Uh, so there, there's force, and anytime we force ourselves to do, do anything, it's a, a sort of violence that we're practicing on ourselves. Um, and I experienced that with meditation practices. A lot of other people are, are experiencing it today because um, I think as we were talking about earlier too, these images and desires get planted in our heads by other people. And if we're not cognizant, um, we get stuck on this other person's desire, basically. That's what I see. Um, and Yeah, totally. Um, so what is the difference between force and power? Force and power, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> because, so I'll, I'll go ahead and answer my own question. <laughs> uh, yeah, that but, would uh, be great. <laughs> uh, so force, like we've been talking about, is a sense of violence or a sense of like uh, motivation or I'm going to you know, do this thing even though I don't want to do it. And, and I mean, it's important to sometimes do the things you don't have an attraction. Yeah, of course, to do. There, are, there are some yeah. activities we can't ignore. Yeah. Um, but if you're doing your whole life there, it's, there's going to be a, there's going to be a, yeah, um, that's mess. yeah. Um, and then power is essentially the way I, I, when you were talking about heart, that's, I immediately saw that as power, like a flow state is power or influence or, and you're just babe, it basically just like emanates from you, but it requires no action on your part. Mm, what I, I believe. See. Yeah, the um, effortless effort, effort, effortless effort. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I I generally experience experience this effortless effort thing, and uh, the Buddhist uh, that uh, no Zen Zen concept of no mind motion. I experience these things uh, during my writing sessions, mm. and uh, yeah, I think this is a good point. I I think that's why people should. Uh, try to make their work an art form or make their art form a work because once you are involved in an art form 
then uh, then you this uh, these gaining these kind of states of no mind and motion it becomes possible you experience it firsthand that what effortless effort looks like like sometimes i'm writing i generally do not write directly on twitter or any blog post i write mostly on my notebook so sometimes when i'm writing it feels like it's just flowing i it feels like i am not writing it 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 feels like it is writing itself through me so probably this is what uh, the zen zen people call effortless effort mm-hmm. like i am not writing it or doing anything to write it it is just writing itself so yeah i think this is something uh, people should uh, try to experience in their life and it happens for me in a lot of different circumstances when i'm playing sports when i'm dancing when i'm writing when i yeah exactly yeah. these kind of things uh, do sprout this effect and what do you think it is that blocks most people from experiencing that and i, I believe that that there are some people who experience that with all of life even when they're in obstacles exactly that's uh, that's the uh, end goal uh, that's uh, something i am also working on to expand the no mind effect to the to the entire day instead of just those restricted hours of uh, writing yeah and so that, it is one of the goals yeah and that that and that no mind doesn't mean that there's no thoughts or no anything like that it means that like the thought has its purpose and its role when you know you need to do something mechanical and you need to like uh, yeah then you bring in the word. thought instead yeah. of just thought popping up randomly <laughs> throughout the day yeah 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 i i got this concept from the book uh what was that book then mm. in the art of archery mm. and uh, from that i got fascinated in uh, uh, these ancient archery uh, trainings then samurai trainings and warrior monk trainings and this is kind of common theme across all of them that they first try to achieve make their disciples or students achieve the state of no mind and motion uh, in uh, during their work sessions during their sessions of practice mm. and then the goal is to expand it throughout the, for the entire day mm. and uh, that, that i really found that uh, concept very fascinating especially after i started experiencing these things in my own life in my writing sessions yeah. and it feels like to expand it into the rest of the day there is no how to manual you can't really do mm. that <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's 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 it, it I'll, i'll give something that i learned from someone else which is that you might know the word tarka um but uh it's essentially discernment into the nature of reality that there are no there are no practices that can get you to discernment towards the nature of reality like you do these shamatha these meditation practices all the all these different things they're they're not useful for allowing you to inquire into having an experiential shift where you really you know experience that the whole universe is inside of you and you are the universe as well and that that this thing this separate sense of self is not is not the deepest layer of reality um and and that can't come across, come about through practice it, it can't come about through through force it can't come about through anything except a momentary realization and experience of that um which is paradoxical because all of those practices somehow set the conditions to make it that more easy yeah uh, on the spiritual road everything is paradoxical <laughs> <laughs> yeah well cool this has been really fun um 
anything you want to leave the listeners in this, in these last couple of minutes? Last couple of minutes. Uh, no, all is fine. Yeah, uh, I think uh, some people uh, asked me uh, for some advice on uh, for teenagers. Mm. So for teenagers, for the late teens and uh, especially early twenties, I would suggest that uh, one must follow. Uh, one must. Uh, try to explore their interests and try to find their talents. Uh, because I remember this is exactly what I did in my late teens and early twenties. And I wouldn't change a thing that I did in, in those times. So I definitely think if, uh, if you are a parent, uh, you are advising a teen teenager, I would recommend that uh, try to encourage them to explore their interests and find their unique talent. Like everyone has some unique talent because of the DNA and the particular upbringing and their surroundings. Mm. So one must find if by age of 25, you can find it and find your talent. And that is something in which you are uniquely capable of, and uh, you could find a way to monetize it. Then uh, you are set for life. Mm. Very cool. So that would be my advice for youngsters. Very cool. And uh, I imagine a lot of people who are going to listen to this already follow you on Twitter, but for those who don't, how can they find out more about you, what you're working on? Uh, they can uh, connect with me on Twitter at crazy polymath and they can subscribe to my weekly newsletter, which I do not send weekly, but yeah, they can subscribe uh, to the newsletter at crazypolymath.com. Cool. Thank you, Kunal. Thanks. Thanks to it. It was great talking to you. Uh-huh. Hope you enjoyed this episode with Kunal at Crazy Polymath on Twitter. And I'll be publishing, my aim is to publish episodes every day, Monday through Friday. Uh, And so I'll be publishing another one tomorrow. And then next week, hopefully again, I'm moving to a new place up in the mountains, up above Medellin. Um, And the internet is good, not quite as good as down here, but, uh, but I should be able to get all of the episodes published Monday through Friday. Hope you guys have a great year. And if you find this episode interesting, please find us on Spotify, on iTunes, on Stitcher, any of the major platforms, and go ahead and subscribe. And if you really liked it, please leave us a review too. Have a great new year.